Yo, party people, Pastor With No Answers listeners, what is up? It's a new episode, and I was thinking about when my wife and I first got married, we said that cliche romantic thing of we're getting Oh, we're going to get old together. And I'm here to report to you that we have done it. We have gotten old together. Like, it's no more we are going to. We have, and we are, and it's been 19 years, man. That's a long time. And I think about this podcast listenership and how we have been together for a long time. Some of you since day one. Some of you going back to the early days of Bad Christian, where I think the first episode was released in 2014. That's a long time, man. We're getting old together. Sometimes there's going to be a day in the future where you're listening to this intro and you're going to say, hey, Maria, you got to come in here. Joey said the same shit three times in a row. I think he's going to say the same thing a four time is going to be a world record. You got to hear this because we're all just going to be getting old together. Maria, the woman that you're trying to get to the kitchen, she didn't hear you because she has hearing problems. And so you're going to have to yell to try to get her in there. We're all going to get old together. And I do love the fact there is like a community part of this podcast. We interact on Pastor With No Answers discussion page. We react. Uh, we uh, interact behind the scenes on email, and we actually have a formal community gathering. If you want more information on that, email me. But it's just uh, nice to be a part of a culture of family, team humanity, a respect for all walks, trying to bridge the damn gra- gap between conservative and progressive theology. Like, let's maybe learn from one another and don't pick sides. And I understand there's times to get angry and put our foot down, stand up for what's right and stand up against evil. But maybe our default position doesn't have to be anger and frustration and demonizing and canceling. Maybe our first default should be, well, let's start with loving our enemies and see where that takes us. So I'm thankful to be a part of something that you all are a part of as well. Thank you for allowing me to do this. And I want to thank you also for helping on DonorC.com forward slash PWNA helps where we have helped a mother become self-employed so she can support her family. It's awesome what we do every single month. We have an opportunity and I thank you patrons because a lot of your contributions goes towards that. And I want to say that if you listen to this podcast regularly, I'm asking, I'll just, I'll just boldly ask right now that you consider being a patron it will help this podcast do some things that we're wanting to do and expand some different opportunities that we want to take. If you don't want to or can't totally understand, and there is zero offense, I appreciate you as a listener. But if you do listen regularly, I would love for you to consider that. And I want you to ask God. And um, we're going to pray right now. Okay? Okay. <laughs> so today's episode is a doozy for me personally, and it's a little bit unique as it is very heavy on the scripture analysis for like the first 15 minutes, the crux of Reverend Madison Shockley's posture in aiding people to be able to die when they want to is in a passage about King Saul. And so it's heavy on the scripture assessment, but you got to hang in there because it is a remarkable, insightful, very intriguing talk about how and why people should be able to take death into their own hands when they are declared terminal so they don't have to enter into a season of brutal 
brutal battle with death, such as cancer in your brain, where it just shuts you down and makes you convulse and your family sees you and just a horrible, horrible. I've heard of people whose eyes have completely sunk in and they're still alive. And this guy and the organization he's a part of is just trying to help people die with dignity. It's not suicide. It's not euthanasia. You may think it is, but I think after listening to Rev, you will at least have your mind open to a different perspective with all this. So all of you, thank you so much for right now. You are going to hear from Ellen Morrow and Jack Hoy. We talk about spanking. We talk about Jack being an Enneagram 5 and how that affects his parenting. But I love these guys. They're friends. I love you guys. Hope you enjoy. So, Ellen, you text. I, I don't. I don't know if you're serious or not. When you texted me, you said that all you want to do is talk about spanking. Is that oh, true? Yeah. All you want to do is talk about spanking. Do you spank? Well, when, as it relates to disciplining children. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. <laughs> Thank you. Just because you know we had also talked about some other stuff that I wasn't comfortable with, and I didn't want to go down, down yes. that road. Yes. <laughs> so, do you spank your kids? <clears throat> Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. No. You're you're against it. Absolutely. I think it's child abuse. Jack, spank your kids. Uh, do not. That would wow. have been real awkward, so Jack. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone. This has been a good episode. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm the I'm the crazy archaic guy. I spanked every single one of my kids, mm-hmm. and I, why don't and, and you, I'll tell you, you can say hit instead of spank. It's the same thing. No. True. No, hit is when you ball your fist. Oh, There's a slap. big difference. No, yeah, slap. Or, I slap their their body. Or using a weapon. It, I guess there's different types. Yeah, cool, cool. <laughs> but here, so here's here's the deal. Two of my kids, like I, I'll admit, two of them, I probably did, I probably could have found out a different way of disciplining, and it was not often. I could probably count on two hands, maybe one hand. No pun intended as far as spanking them, but two of the two of my kids, my second oldest daughter and my second oldest son, that is the only thing that would do anything. Like I would literally put them in timeout and I would have to stand there with the doorknob in my hand holding the door or else they would come out. It's like nothing worked. They would come out of the room for a timeout. And so I, you know, take down their pants, hit their bottoms. And then here's what I would say. I would say, did I enjoy that? No, dad, you didn't enjoy that. Why did I do that? And I had them train because you love us and you want what's best for us. It's like, well, tell me more. So they basically go through the whole deal that I'm trying to teach them because I love them and that's not fun for me. Now, I will for sure concede to the fact that that may not be right, but that's the honest truth. That's the honest truth. I mean, I was... Ellen is stunned. I was... I mean, I'm not stunned because you're from the South. And it's like, <laughs> that's just people, you know... That's an offense to Jack. Sw- Jack doesn't smank his Yeah, kids. well, Jack is you like... made a stereotype. He's yeah, more... He might be more evolved than you. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I would go to the... As a kid, I would go to the doctor to get a physical. And there were whelps on my bottom because my parents took the scripture literally spare the rod. I had an... I had a rod, child. too, an iron rod wrapped yep. in electrical tape. 
Oh, good gosh. Mine was wooden. Well, we Holy also had like shit. the belt in the wooden spoon, but like as as time mm. went on, somehow like a rod came into play. Interesting. Wow, that's yeah, that sounds that sounds bad. You just don't have to do it. And it I started turning my mind around to it when Phoebe was really little. My daughter's name is Phoebe, my son's name is Louie. And um it was very uh, confusing concept to me to say don't hit. But then if you do something wrong, I'm going to go hit you. Yeah. It's yeah, very confusing for a kid. And especially there's a lot of spiritual abuse that gets kind of woven in there when you're like, you sinned against God. And like what, Joey, what you were saying, not that I'm saying that you were a, a spiritually abusing your kids or anything, but the whole, the whole thing of like, I don't want to do this. That's very confusing for kids, I think. Then it's like, well, you don't have to. Please don't. Please don't hit me. Then, if you don't have to do it, please don't do it. Because, but I, you could say the same thing about timeout, which I would too. Like, if I put somebody in timeout and it really sucks for them and they're screaming, I could say the same thing. I don't. I don't enjoy this because I don't. I don't enjoy. Well, but the, the difference hard- is when you're you, when you're causing physical pain, and you're the like you're the sole person that's supposed to protect them from physical pain. Yeah. It's, it just seems really out of line. I, I yeah. started talking about this a lot more a couple of weeks ago or this last week because I was at the zoo and I saw a woman just slap the shit out of her little tiny little, like maybe three-year-old. And this little girl uh. was crying these terrible, sad, like scared tears. And just because the little girl was like, I don't know, trying to climb a rock or something. Yeah. It was just, that's, it, it had me shook up, you know? Yeah. And then Phoebe looks at me and just sort of confused. And I said, do you know what spanking is? So we had this whole conversation and I had to explain to my kid that I've chosen not to hit her when she does something I don't want her to do. Because ultimately it's about our dominance and getting what we want. And I don't think physically harming someone because they're doing something you don't like is acceptable at all. Yep. Let them be shitty kids, you know. Don't hit your kids. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Speaking yeah. of, I mean, kid. especially with what you guys are saying, I mean, probably if I had to do it all over again, probably wouldn't have. And at the same yeah. time, I think to myself, I don't know how I would have helped my youngest son understand consequences because there is just absolutely. Well, Nothing sometimes else. there's just natural ones, you know? Yep. So, Jack, I want to ask you a question. It, yeah. Ellen, what's your Enneagram number again? We've talked about I'm, this, I think. I'm um, a very fun seven with a very, very terrible eight wing. Aren't all sevens fun in that? You, you I think so, but I, I don't just, know. You just say a seven. Seven. Yeah. So, Jack, I don't. I hope this doesn't insult you, but I really was. You know, I texted you probably a couple of times in the last few months, wanting to know your Enneagram number because I just went through a whole book. There were like three numbers that I wasn't familiar with, and now I'm familiar with all of them. Does this hurt your feelings, Jack? When I when I ask you, what's it like to parent children as a five? Like, do you have a hard time just not observing them and assessing their moves and their actions? Like, do you ever think to yourself, "Oh my gosh"? It's like they're walking around with my heart. I just love them so much. Like, do you have those? Will sorts you remind of feelings, me what a five is? It's it's the observer. So yeah, the, like the observer, like highly compartmentalized. Um, you know, uh, love learning, 
of knowledge. Um, I, you know, I I don't think that's a really interesting question. I don't think from my is it offensive. Is it offensive? No. Okay. Um, I think Mark Driscoll's a five. From my perspective, that might be it. Driscoll's a five. That might be offensive. No, he has to be a three and a five. Most pastors that have a big name, they've got to be threes. All right, sorry, sorry Jack. Back to your. No, point. no, not all. Um, you know, that's hard. That's kind of hard to answer because so so like like I'm I'm very compartmentalized, right? And so I've got and and they're like my kids, my family are in the closest part to me, and yeah. so. You know, it's like I people who might ask me, it's like, how's your day today? And like my reaction to a lot of people would be like, I'm not sure who you are. Why are you asking me that? Um, what's it to you? Like, like that's that was the hardest thing about moving down to the south for me. Not the hardest thing, but one of the hardest things is being in the checkout line and the person saying, oh, what's for dinner tonight? It's like, you're not coming over. That's a weird question for you to ask. Um and uh, you know, it's like it's like open ended. Real quick, does that sound crazy to you, Ellen? Someone. Well, I was just gonna say, try Seattle. try being pregnant, and then people ask you some real real inappropriate questions. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, <laughs> nope. for some reason, you know, yeah. I mean, so we've we've got two boys, and that was one of the weirdest things for me about being out in public with Laura is like, for some reason, when when a person is pregnant, it causes apparently everyone else around them to have no boundaries. Um, it's just the weirdest thing. I'll never forget. I was checking out at a grocery store and I was very pregnant at the time. And the guy said, Oh, Audi belly button, huh? <laughs> and I was like, when, oh my God. I mean, what do you have? I don't, why are we talking about this? Um, I, I've, I've, I've got a story that can rival that one. So this is Priscilla's first child, Rosa. She's now a teen. And word was getting around that she was pregnant, but she wasn't showing. She was children's director at our church. And there was a guy, and I'll be careful with what I say. I don't think he listens to this, but he's a little socially awkward. I'll put it that way. And he knew that Priscilla was pregnant. So here Priscilla is talking to, I don't know, probably another parent. And this socially awkward guy literally comes up to her, starts rubbing her belly saying, oh, I'm praying for this. I'm praying for you. And Priscilla felt like she had to say, I'm pregnant. That's why his hands are touching my belly. I'm pregnant. <laughs> because the, the person she's talking to is just like, what in the world is this dude doing rubbing Priscilla's belly? And where is Joey to stop him? <laughs> oh, oh, gracious, gracious, gracious. So so as a five, Jack, do you, I mean, see, I, I really don't want, I don't, I don't want to sound offensive, but. I would guess that you don't, do you think hard and long about whether or not you're being a good parent? Like, does that something that you, that bothers you? Like, that's something that if I'm not careful, oh, yeah. I can beat myself up about. Oh, yeah. I mean, okay. so you, you know, guys that's... are human and you have a heart and all of that. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, here, here's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing that's hard about your question is, I've never thought about the question, what does being a five mean as a parent? And as a five, I need at least six months to process that question <laughs> before I can give you an answer that I'm comfortable with. Um, no, I, I, I really am lot, surprised you come on this podcast a lot because you've told me that many yeah. times that you like to process and you're not, you're not allowed to process on a podcast. You just you no, don't have that luxury. 
Well, I think that's one of the things you and I discovered is 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 you enjoy when I'm kind of on my back foot a little bit. Um, Joey's sick. You know, Joey's I, sick like that. I'm sick. <laughs> he is, yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think a lot about you know, I think a lot about my boys and what they like and or what they're like because you know there there are these these. My job is not to turn them into people. My job is to help them become the people they were made to be, and. I can as easily get in the way of that and I can as easily close parts of them off as I can help them feel like grow into those things. Like I, I can remember, you know, especially with, with my oldest being in, in uh, uh, elementary school, I like, he comes home some days and I like remember very clearly things that I have not thought about in 30 years. Um, things that happened to me that, because he's very similar to me in some ways. And I can remember things happening to me in school that made me realize, Oh, like the way I am is actually not okay. Um, and I need to stop being that way and not, not reaccessing those parts of myself until just the last few years. Um, and so I'm, I'm really conscious of, you know, who are they? And just because something about them drives me a little bit nuts, like, Hey, is that thing actually, like a flaw? Is that just like, hey, sometimes kids do annoying stuff? Or is that a part of them that I actually need to pay attention to and I need to change something to yeah. make sure that I'm not wounding them in a way that I don't realize I'm doing? Yeah. Yeah. Alan, do you ever have those thoughts? Because I know you regret having kids in the first place, or at least having <laughs> mm. your second. One. I don't. Jack, just do you so have, you know, I I know. Yeah. I, I do. But she, but Ellen is hilarious with how you talk about it because Listen. you do make sarcastic comments like you're not sure if you should have had a second kid. It was a mistake. You say stuff like that, but we all know you're Well, joking. I think all children are mistakes. <laughs> all of them. We So God, no, God make, making us have reproduction, that was a mistake? Maybe. Maybe a big blooper. Because well, Romans 828, then he's working good out of it because they're beautiful. Um, you they're know, beautiful maybe kids. when I'm not a shell of myself, we can have a different conversation about it. But right now I just look at my children and I'm just like, it's, it's a battle to not resent. Okay. <laughs> that's, um, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. So resent and regret two different things. Yeah. You don't regret their lives, but you do resent them. Do you feel like you're being robbed right now? Priscilla uh, felt like she was being of robbed my, of my kids. Of, of every, everything, right. everything. Right. Yeah, there's some there's some moms that are like, oh, I just uh, always wanted to be a mother, and yeah, this well, just makes me feel complete. Bullshit. Like, obviously, Priscilla loves the hell out of all of her kids, but when she was producing, and we had four of them, she really felt like these kids are robbing me of what I want to do with. Yeah, my and I'm life. still they're still little, so right. Um, people always say, "Well, you're in it, girl," and right. it's like, "Well, when do I get out of it, girl?" Yeah. And you just don't. I would like to go back to work and have some sort of purpose. And if one more per person tells me that um, my purpose is rearing my children, they, I, mean, I was just going to say, what about being a mother? That's a wonderful purpose. Yes, but the mother identity is like, it's, I think mo mommy, <laughs> cult mommy culture has made the mother identity void of any other things besides... It's just a modern version of the housewife, and it's not in. I'm not interested in that. What do you think about maternity leave? And I don't know if that's the correct terminology, but if if a, if a husband should have as much participation with the kid, shouldn't they get time off also? 
A thousand percent, yeah. Where yeah. America's way behind. Yeah. Is that yeah. what they do in other countries? Oh, yeah. Oh, Some of them get that. a year off. Wow. Wow. Well, we, we just have such a warped relationship with work in general. That's you know, true. It's, it's, not, it's not just a... It, it's in large part reflected in family policy, but we just have such a bizarre, you know... Uh, relationship to how we view work and and its role in our lives. Yeah, like when you're a little kid, it's always about what do you want to be when you grow up. It's like we we start yeah. having kids think about working every day. What what Gosh. are they going to do for their job instead yeah. of who they want to be and how do they want to make change? It's like what career are you going to see? See, you guys are further along in that thought press than me too because I've never thought about that. Now, other other countries like Japan, for instance, who are well beyond us technologically, they're like us though, right? Don't they see work the well, same way? Well, there's a whole word for it. Yeah, they're overworked. For Asian people who work, there's a whole word for it? Well, in Japan especially. Oh. It's like a whole thing. Plus, they've got yeah. honor cu- culture and stuff, well, which is also... And and part of their deal, though, is it, it's, it's such a, a radically different kind of culture. And I think one of the things that makes their um, approach to work more sustainable is that they aren't so atomized as we are. You know, our, our culture is so individualistic. You know, yeah, in Japan, you're going to be overworked, but you're also going to have actual real relationships with a lot of those people. You're going to have really strong family relationships, more likely, um, people you live close by. So there's more of a support system. You know, one, one of the issues, as I idiotically wait into this discussion one of the issues with parenting and motherhood in in america is like there's no support system it's you and and at best the two of you and you know if you don't live near family you're in trouble um and that's just such a such an aberration if you if you think historically and what it means to raise a family historically the idea of well it's the parental unit and their children and that's how that works it's that's crazy and it's it's really unhealthy what's your what's your audience yeah so our audience would be mostly christian and people that are thinking a little more progressively um kind of growing uh, well i don't want to say growing out because that sounds a little uh, arrogant but kind of parting ways with fundamental evangelicalism and just rethinking a lot. What's what's now being called ex-evangelicals. There you go. There you go. I try not to adopt that because I also love my evangelical brothers and sisters, but yes, yes. You yeah, no, right. I, I, it's an apt description um, because they carry that spirit with them. Yeah. Got you. And, uh, but they're, they're starting to show up in our churches. Now, some of them stick, some of them were just too far on the edge. Right. But they're really wanting something much more tolerant, right? Uh, much more open, uh, much more focused on on the ethics. Well, how should I say it? On the com- community ethics as opposed to the personal ethics, right? And and even that's not the right way to say it, right? Yeah, there's there's really no right way to say it. I, th- I guess I guess I guess they want a broader ethics. That's what it sure. is. Sure. Sure. Well, it's just I I find that it is just a little more open handedness with an admission of we can't know everything like we 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 don't uh, my background. I was taught to put the Bible on the same level as God, where I feel like the Uh, Bible can become an idol. 
Yeah. And I need <laughs> I need God to help me interpret the Bible. And I think I've been taught that the Bible, I'm in the driver's seat and the Bible's clear and I need to make sense out of the world with this clear book that is not clear. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Now, and, you know, I have my evangelical uh, experience as well. Uh, and the, the black church evangelicalism always had a social justice edge right. in regard to civil rights. Right. Now, as you know, the black church is not naturally open to gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender folk, right. and and not always open to women. Right, right. So, but 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 having a fundamental experience where the Bible, certainly around slavery, is 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 radically and freely reinterpreted. Right, gives you the capacity to apply that same. Uh, hermeneutic to other issues. Right, right. Oh, I can tell that I'm going to want to have you back on this podcast to talk about a lot of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness gracious. So you guys supply, from what I understand on your website, you call it end-of-life care. And when I was emailing to set up an interview, it was made clear to me that this is not euthanasia. And I think for me and my listeners' sake, like, what's the difference between what you guys are advocates of and euthanasia? So euthanasia has come to mean the, a third party, uh, an individual, or the society right. imposing death on a person. And so that's the first thing that this is a self-administered medication that a person chooses for their own, through their own decision-making process uh, to ingest, to end their suffering while they're in the dying process. Right. Right. Gotcha. Gotcha. So growing up. I'll I'll, I'll just add that it's also not suicide. Right. Suicide is a mental illness when an otherwise healthy person chooses to end their life. Wow. And so this is only for persons who are dying. Right. The outcome of their life in the near, near future, six months or less, is not in doubt. Right. And, and so it's not a question of them uh, choosing to live or choosing to die. Ultimately, that 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 is clear and in sight. Right. Okay. And so it is not deemed by the uh, psychological and, and psychiatric associations as suicide. Gotcha. Gosh, this is intriguing. So growing up, it was all for, for me, it was all about the sanctity of life. Only God could take life, except in the case of capital punishment, obviously, which is <laughs> as an evangelical fundamentalist, I would justify capital punishment by saying, well, it's according to God's law. Thus, it's really God frying someone on the electric chair, not humans. But it is it's. I have come, and that's, you know, I actually reached out to you guys after Googling uh, 
Christian support for euthanasia, and obviously that's not what you guys are advocates of, but I still stumbled across you guys. And it was because when I think through this, so let me tell you something really funny. I was watching, uh, well, it's actually not super funny, but it's a law. It was a law and order episode. My wife loves it and I was watching it with her. And through the whole episode, you actually, you're wondering, why did this mom kill her newborn? Like, why would she do that? And, and you, you see her as like a monster and just, you're just trying to, re- you know, she seems like a very reasonable person. And why would she do that? It just doesn't seem like her. And then at the end of the movie, you find out that that baby had a diagnosis from the doctor that she was going to be in excruciating pain for four to five weeks before she dies. So there, like you said, there wasn't a question mark as to whether she was going to die. She was going to die, but she was going to be in excruciating pain up until her death. And a loving mom said, I can't stand by and see my daughter die a painful death needlessly. And then I also think about, you know, for me and my journey with with what I'm talking to you about, I think about a war situation in which the enemy has taken over and your buddy is is basically laying there. You know he's going to die, but the enemy is coming and your friend just says, please, please, please just put me out of my misery because I'm going to die. And if they get me, then they may torture me until I die. And I was like, this just isn't so – it's not simple. It is not simple at all. So, You know what you just said is in the Bible. Please tell me. That's the death of Saul. That is exactly the death of Saul. Gotcha. So so what you just said, Joey, is in the Bible. You described exactly the account at the end of chapter 31 in 1 Samuel, the death of Saul. Uh, If you have a moment, I'll I'll read it. Yeah, please do. 1 Samuel 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and many fell on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard upon Saul. The archers found him, and he was badly wounded by them. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, so that these uncircumcised may not come and thrust me through and make sport of me. Wow. But his armor bearer was unwilling, for he was terrified. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon him. That's right. Gosh, I forgot about that story. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together on the same day. When the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their towns and fled and the Philistines came and occupied them. Now, check this out. The next paragraph. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Astarte, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. 
But when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men set out, traveled all night long, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Now, end of story, right? Right, right. Period, paragraph, done. No. As you know from your study of, of Scripture, there are several Scriptures that tell the same story in two different ways. And there's another one that begins in the next chapter. Now, just as you were saying, Saul knew that he was going to die. Now, what, what we moderns may understand, it says the archers found him, which means the actual army were, you know, this was their artillery, in, in other words. Right. And they could shoot, you know, two, three hundred meters. And so that's why he had this time delay between he was mortal, when he was mortally wounded and they caught up with him. And exactly what he feared happened. They cut off his head, they humiliated him, and they displayed his body throughout the whole area. Right. So now, in 2 Samuel, that was the end of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 1, a whole different story. Now, some scholars try to reconcile the two, but there are some significant differences. Hear this, 2 Samuel chapter 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from defeating the Amalekites, the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. On the third day, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and did obeisance. David said to him, where have you come from? He said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. David said to him, how did things go? Tell me. He answered, the army fled from the battle, but also many of the army fell and died. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, also died. Then David asked the young man who was reporting to him, how do you know that Saul and his son, Jonathan, died? The young man reporting to him said, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. And there was Saul leaning on his spear while the chariots and the horsemen drew close to him. When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. I answered, here, sir. And he said to me, who are you? I answered, I am an Amalekite. He said to me, come, stand over me and kill me. For the convulsions have seized me and yet my life lingers. Wow. So I stood over him and killed him, for I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Dang. Is that deep? Yeah. So how, how do you reconcile the two? I mean, I don't think it necessarily has to be reconcilable, but what's the perp? What's, why are they so different? Well, the story is in the first version that Saul was successful. That was a self-administered. And, and this, is, this is something that, that we're ultimately going to have to deal with. Compassion and Choices has passed or has, 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 has offered legislation throughout the country that restricts this to self-administered medication. Right. But we know patients with debilitating physical illnesses 
whose mind is completely intact, but their bodies are incapable of ingesting, experience tremendous suffering. Right. As the law stands now, it will not allow anyone to assist them. So this is a classic example of someone who made an attempt but was incomplete. And so the key here, when the person comes upon him, he says, the convulsions have overtaken me and still my life lingers. And so I interpret this in terms of our offering of end of life um, medication, that our enemy is not the Philistines. Our enemy is the illness that's attacking our body. We know that we're going to die. The convulsions have begun. The pain has begun. And we have, I believe, uh, as part of our own autonomy and free will and the life that we have lived ought to be as dignified and as meaningful to its very end. And death is part of life. And so we don't lose our governance, our self-governance, and our will to live our life according to the call of God on our life until life is over. Right. And so to end our suffering is a conscious act that one can take, I believe, in full faith and grace of God. I don't find the God that I serve, the God of love and compassion, to derive any benefit from our unnecessary suffering in the final days and weeks of our lives. And so we can defeat our Philistines by ingesting medication that will bring our life to an end in peace and without pain. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the story continues. <laughs> That's why the Bible is so good. <laughs> the story is still not over. It continues in verse 11. How does David react to this? Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. That was the rending of the garment. We know that as a sign of mourning. And all the men who were with him did the same. They mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, David said to the young man who had reported to him, where do you come from? He answered, I am the son of a resident alien and Amalekite. David said to him, were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, come here and strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. David said to him, your blood be on your head for your own mouth has testified against you saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now, some will, now that's the end of the verse. Right. Some will interpret this as David passing judgment on what the person had done in terms of assisting the end of Saul's life. Right. But again, we have to, in, we have to translate the language. Right. So Lord's anointed is the English translation of Messiah in Hebrew. Right. So this is obviously before Jesus. Jesus was given the title Messiah, but the Hebrew people, the Jewish people had used the term Messiah for two very distinct individuals, the king 
and the high priest. Because the word Messiah means to anoint. That's why the Lord's anointed. They would pour oil as the act of uh, enthronement on the king and on the high priest as their act of installment as the high priest. And that mark of the oil being poured designates the Lord's anointed. So what David is really saying is, you killed a king and he didn't want anybody else to say, hey, King David, you're looking a little tepid there. Let me kill you. Right. So his objection was not to him assisting Saul in his request, but the fact that he killed a king. Yeah. That's what Saul's armor bearer could not bring himself to do. Gotcha. So it's not about uh, ending his life to avoid the suffering that was going to come. Right. And so we, 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 we offer life-ending medication to persons so they can defeat the Philistines that are assaulting them. Because if their disease, which is the Philistines, catch up with them, they will dismember them, they will torture them, they will kill them. They will dismember them system by system, renal failure, right. circulatory failure, heart failure. And each of these assaults on our lives will only bring us misery in our final moments. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So Compassions or CompassionAndChoices.org. How, tell me a little bit about your background and how this came about. And I'm not even ch- exactly sure what your role in this is. Did you start this organization? Oh, no, 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 not at all. Not at all. This organization is uh, the successor organization to an Oregon movement, okay. Death with Dignity. Death with Dignity, okay. And that's over 30 years ago in Oregon. Um, a nurse and lawyer, Barbara Coombs Lee, along with state legislators, first passed a law of death with dignity that allowed terminally ill, mentally competent adults to choose to use life-ending medication when they were within six months of dying. And so that movement uh, became compassion and choices. And Barbara Coombs Lee was our first uh, CEO president. I joined the organization. Well, I'll put it this way: I joined the movement in 2005 when California was first attempting to pass the law here in our state. Gotcha. I was contacted by a colleague who was involved in the movement, and I first started to do my own research, and that's when I found this passage regarding the death of Saul. So that's kind of the central passage. I mean, it it sounds like that's the crux. There's nothing else in the Bible that that so directly addresses the issue. Right. And so when I saw that, and my background is in Bible. I am a graduate of Union Theological Seminary in New York. I also did PhD work at Claremont Graduate School, um, primarily in New Testament. And I came along at the time of the Jesus Seminar, which gave us a whole broad set of tools of biblical uh, interpretation and exegesis. And so that was my first response was, okay, wait a minute, let me, let me pray about this and let me search the scriptures. And this is what I found. And so then I went to the state legislature here in California, offered my testimony 
theologically, A, the God I know, the God of love and compassion, derives no benefit from our needless suffering at the end of what is otherwise a meaningful and brilliant and joyful life. Two, the scriptures that are my guide show me that it is legitimate to avoid suffering when death is in view. Right, right. That we are, in essence, uh, robbing our enemies of their victory. Death, where is thy sting? Grave, where is your victory? And so I have since then reinterpreted my pastoral experiences. Before I got involved in the movement, I had a clergy colleague. Yeah. Uh, had served a wonderful, wonderful ministry. Uh, he was 95 wonderful years old. He was preaching, and he was a great preacher, uh, straight through 93, 94 hey, years hey, old. Hey. But then he fell seriously ill and began to suffer every day. Wow. And I would go visit him. And on one of my visits, he grabbed hold of my sleeve, and he looked at me with these plaintive eyes, and he said, Madison, why won't God let me die? I was dumbfounded. Right. I, I just didn't understand it. Another experience that I went back and, and reinterpreted, uh, when I was a young pastor, and I had a church member who was of, who had, who had uh, breast cancer, and she had had several bouts of cancer and had gone to chemo and had surgery and all that. And she said to me, Pastor, I'm not going to do chemo again. I'm going to live the rest of my life and I'll let nature take its course. Yeah. We have this culture uh, in our country and particularly in the church that it's our part to do everything we can to extend life. But life is more than the ticks of a clock. Life is the quality and the experience that we have with those around us that we love and the God that we serve in the world that we inhabit. And so I went back and understood for the, after 10 years, that had happened 10 years ago at that time. And I said, now I understand. Right. She saw the Philistines coming. And she says, you're not going to get me. And so while she did not have the advantage of medical aid and dying, it was her choice to die. And that's the ultimate point from compassion and choices. We empower everyone to chart their own end-of-life journey. Yeah. Whatever decision, whatever path a person chooses, we support them. Yeah. Well, let me... And so that, that just ranges from everything from advanced directives to let other people know I want everything or I want nothing to medical aid and dying that allows a person to choose a peaceful and painless death at the end of life. Yeah. So let me throw some objections that I can just imagine some people are having right now. Sure. Like as far as, okay, well, if, if this is admissible, then where do you draw the line? Such as someone who gets in a car wreck and they're paralyzed from the neck down and they say, I do not want to live anymore. And they're going to actually live for a, a good 40 or 50 more years, would that be an example in which that person can choose 
the way that he or she wants to die, if, if it's right then and there because they would rather die than have a whole life of paralysis? That actually is already the law. Gotcha. In terms of where not medical aid in, in, in ev- everywhere in this in this regard, anyone can refuse medical treatment. Okay, that's number one. Anyone can refuse medical treatment. Yeah. No, number two, long practiced strategies for in uh, accelerating death have been known to humanity from from day one, and one of those strategies is simply um, choosing not to eat or drink. And that will accelerate your dying. Medical aid in dying would not be available to the person in the circumstance you just described because they could not self-administer in in the general, in the conventional sense. Uh, Some states are understanding and interpreting self-administered in a broader way that would allow them, if they can swallow, that, that they can be positioned to where they can uh, receive the medication. But that's, you know, that depends on the state interpretation of self-administered. Gotcha. But compassion and choices and the movements before it, and again, humanity from all time. You see, we have come to this in a very modern moment. Our great-grandparents, number one, all died at home because there were no hospitals. Death was a frequent and regular experience for all generations. They were laying there in the parlor of the house. The children now can't go to the hospital. We can't go to the funeral. We shield our children from death. And it becomes this mysterious and unknown experience. And as I said, the key for me was to understand death is part of life. Yeah, that is key. We've only stripped it away from life. In, a, in this very modern moment of the last two, three generations. Yeah. So let me throw another example at you. What if someone is in their 50s and they're told that there's early signs of dementia and that it is going to eventually put them in a state of mental incapacity and yeah. that person decides, you know what? I don't want to go out like that. I don't want my family to see me like that. I would rather choose that I, you know, while I'm still aware of my situation, I would like to go ahead and in my life. That person also is not a candidate for medical aid and dying. And why is that? Uh, Simply because they are not terminally ill. Oh, wow. To be eligible for medical aid and dying, you must have a medical diagnosis certified by two doctors that your your disease untreated would result in your death within six months. It's the same criteria for hospice. Yeah. And yeah. so Alzheimer's at 50 is not a terminal illness within six months. Yeah. Now, that said, again, Compassionate Choices is a, is a movement that's broader than medical aid and dying. And so we do educate people, and there is on our website, CompassionateChoices.org, what we call dementia toolkit, a dementia toolkit, wow. which, which encourages people to write down how they wish to be treated wow. when they can no longer speak for themselves. Uh, this is the most clear example of what we mean by 
informing your family and, 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 and physicians and medical personnel how you wish to be treated. Right now, many dementia patients are force-fed because that's our obligation. Yeah. But while they are not able to articulate it, there's something inside them that says, I don't want to continue. Right. And refusing to eat and drink is a, is a sign of that. Now, they can't articulate that. So that's where, by writing out in advance, when I resist your fe- force feeding me, don't force feed me. Right. Yeah. And, and so the, the, please go to the toolkit uh, for, for more clear examples. I'm just giving you a general example. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, so here, here's here's some good old evangelicalism coming at you now. So what if God wants to heal that person and you took that opportunity away for people to see an absolute miracle? Have you gotten that one yet? <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And all I say is God bless the person who has prayed and has been given the, the spirit of knowledge to 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 trust and believe that healing is on the way. Yeah. Uh, again, we support each person's end of life journey, but for the person who has prayed and have understood in their spirit that death is coming, and they have accepted that, they then have, we believe, uh, the spiritual authority given to them by God because they're still alive and they're still human and they're still um, in, you know, co-workers with God. Yeah. And, and that they see the Philistines coming. I keep coming back to that example. And they have decided that they do not wish to suffer. They do not wish to be uh, tortured by their disease, that they want to arrange the final days of their lives so that they can enjoy their family and so that their family can enjoy them and that they can fall asleep and pass peacefully without pain. Yeah. So compassion and choices, are you guys trying to change legislation all through the country? Is that part, is that part of the movement? We are trying to change health care throughout the country. Okay. And medical aid in dying has given um, the, the, the medical industry a real wake-up call, because basically what it says is the patient is always in charge of their health care. Yeah. And that the, the doctor has to defer to the patient right up to the last breath. It's too many of us, and this was the idea behind um, advanced directives, telling the doctor, when I can't speak for myself, this is what I want. But those medical directors, advanced directors, have not proven to be as effective and as efficient as we had hoped. And so we are trying to change, first of all, healthcare. And one of the tools for doing that is medical aid and dying. Right. And, and here's the, 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 the breakdown generally of how that happens. First of all, only about one-third of the persons who request the medication, actually use it. But everyone who receives the prescription or the medication 
immediately find themselves in a feeling and in a spirit of peace and and relief that should their disease take a turn, they can avoid the suffering. Yeah, yeah. But most of them, well, one third of them will live out their lives according to uh, the disease and they will not find it necessary to take the medication. Gotcha, gotcha. But the peace of mind that they achieve simply by having it is a tremendous medical and health benefit to their mental health, particularly. And so then another third die before they can complete the process. This is not a simple process. There are some 20, 30 steps in achieving the prescription. Two doctors certifying your medical condition as terminal. Another set of doctors certifying your mental capacity as as, uh, competent to make this decision. Then you have to ask for the medication uh, twice. Then you have to wait 15 days. And what we're finding now is that people can make it all through those steps, but their death is so imminent that they die within the 15-day waiting period. Yeah, yeah. So, yes, we are trying to change healthcare across the country. Medical aid and dying is kind of, you know, the the, the shiny object that that brings attention to the fact that we are advocating for patient-centered care not patient-centered, I'm sorry, patient-directed care. Right. Yep, yep. And so this is law, this is the law in Oregon, correct? Like someone- And, and, and in the District of Columbia and in nine other states. Goodness gracious. So Brittany Maynard was reading oh, about yes. her. She was terminally ill at 29 years old and she fought for medical aid in dying legislation for California- um, yes, yes. and, and that, that was not legal there. And so well, let me, I'm glad you brought her up because I meant to mention her. Yeah. So I, I went to the state legislature in 2005. We were not successful. Okay. Then in 2000, I think it was 13 or 14, Brittany Menard had to move from California to Oregon to take advantage of their law. And she made a YouTube video. And she told her story that her brain tumor was going to cause her convulsions and pain. And she did not want to experience that. Right. And her story was so compelling that it re-energized the movement for medical aid and dying in California. I went back to the state and, of course, myself and many others who wrote letters, who marched, who talked, called their legislators and so forth. And finally, the law was passed in California in 2015. But it was Brittany Menard's impetus that that helped us pass that law. And that movement swept across the country. So we have states like New Jersey, uh, North Dakota, Hawaii. Just the other day, New Mexico is on the way. Um, and, and a total of 10 states in the District of Columbia. Um, of course, Oregon. And... Uh, Colorado. Uh, so go to compassionandchoices.org to find out the status of the movement in your state. Yeah. And so I'd like to quote Brittany. She, she says, having this choice at the end of my life 
has become incredibly important. It has given me a sense of peace during a tumultuous time that otherwise would be dominated by fear, uncertainty, and pain. And if I saw correctly, your website also has quotes from people who did not have this option and wish that they had. That's exactly right. And let me tell you a story about Brittany Menard. Um, Our church, Pilgrim United Church of Christ, is here in Carlsbad, California. Brittany Menard was from California. Brittany Menard was from a town about 10 minutes from Carlsbad. And when the legislation was passed in California, Brittany had already died. But her mother came to our church just to thank our congregation for our support of the law. And she was supposed to speak for about five minutes just to bring greetings. She spoke for 20 of the most powerful minutes that I've ever witnessed in our pulpit. Wow. But I'll say this, and she, part of her passion was that she was so grateful that our church supported the law and would receive her, her uh, uh, Menard's mother, and I'm sorry, her name is, is blanking me sure, right now. Sure. To receive her and to support her in the death of her daughter, because the church which she did attend did not support her and did not support the law. And she felt really grateful that there was a congregation and a pulpit and a place where she could come and receive the support of a spiritual community. And the last thing I'll say is this, not every church, and we're not advocating that every church ought to be like us. We want everyone to chart their own end of life journey. And that could be as conventional as as people do every day. But I say to my, my clergy colleagues, medical aid and dying is coming to, is active in California and is coming to a state near you. We have a pastoral responsibility to minister to our members through their last breath, to be their bedside. And if our members are choosing medical aid and dying, we need to understand it. We need to help them and minister to them in the decision that they've made in their own spirit and in their own prayer and in their own co-working with God to bring a life that they have enjoyed and lived to a peaceful and quiet end. Gosh, it just makes so much sense. I I theorize that we will eventually arrive at at a place in time in our history where we'll look back and be shocked that this wasn't how we always did it, to be honest well, with you. Yeah, and, and I'm, I didn't finish answering your question earlier. So I, I've been active in the movement since 2005. I joined the board of directors uh, three years ago, and that's, that's my current role as a member of the board of directors of CompassionAndChoices.org. Uh, and we are at a tipping point in our culture. And that's what I find so exciting about being part of this movement and part of Compassion and Choices. You're, you're exactly right, Joey. The culture is at a tipping point. When you have states like California, which of course is the largest state, uh, New York is looking at legislation. Illinois is looking at legislation. 
New Jersey has also passed legislation. Montana has legislation. So a majority of the population of the country, if not a majority of the 50 states, but a majority of the population of the country, uh, is, it is our hope will be covered by a medical aid and dying law, uh, certainly before the end of this decade. Yeah. So a couple of final questions. Is there a an estimate or do you know an exact number of of legal assisted end of life care that have arrived to its uh, final end with people in this country? I don't know for the country off the top of my head. You can get state by state data from our website. Are we talking dozens yeah. or hundreds? Well, I was going to say here in California, which is 30 million people, right. of course. Now, how many die each year? I, I can't say. But we're talking less than 5,000. Gotcha. Gotcha. Probably in the 2,500. And that, I would say this, 5,000 have begun the process and received the prescription. Probably less than 2,000 actually have used it. Gotcha. And that is what we find. A minor, we're really a very small numbers. But the impact on medical care and the impact on the quality of life and the quality of death is significant. Yeah, it's interesting because I even living in South Carolina, I think, man, if this was ever passed here, I would have a sense of peace. Like if I ever was in a situation, I'd be like, man, I'm glad that I wouldn't have to suffer needlessly. I mean, that's... You're making my point again. I, I was restricting it to people who actually obtain the, the uh, prescription. Right. But you're absolutely right. People who may never tell their doctor this is what they want, but the fact that they live in a state where this can happen right. brings them a peace of mind that they don't have otherwise. Right. So, how typically does it happen? The person takes a pill. What are they typically laying in bed? Their family yep. gathers around, and how long does it take? And I'm assuming zero pain. They just fall asleep, and that's it? Correct on the last point. It's, it's effectively two medications that one takes. Uh, one is kind of a sedative, and the other is the um, – there are a variety of medications that are used, uh, and probably anywhere from half an hour to three hours uh, as, as, a, as a range. And this, Joey, opens up a whole new possibility for end-of-life uh, rituals. Yeah. So now you can schedule the day that your life will Goodness. end. Yep. And you can tell your family that how many times have I, as a pastor, and you in your experience, should I fly to see grandma yes. or should I come back at the funeral? All of those kinds of decisions. And then how many times have we said, give me my flowers while I live. Right. Right. I don't know about you, but I am now envisioning my funeral. I'm going to attend my funeral. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and then after everyone is after the benediction retreat with my family, ingest my medication and go on to be home. I have a little. Wow. Reverend Shockley, you are a breath of fresh air. And this is just, it, it, like I said, it, it really does. It really does feel right. And I think that. Well, Joey, thank you for your courageous work uh, in this podcast and bringing a breadth of information and perspectives to your listening audience. And I commend you for that. Absolutely. And hey, let me tell you this. If you have not seen the movie called Blackbird. 
this you, you need to watch it because it is it is all about this and it shows the family dynamics only the woman who is doing this she obviously isn't able to do it legally but her husband gets medication that sounds very much so like what is is legally done that you're talking about but it is a beautiful movie i'm familiar with it i haven't seen it and there are a number of how shall i say it dramatic literary uh and other explorations of this issue yep. because that's ultimately what we mean by culture right and then books and movies and stories and and, and even songs now are helping people to to understand and come to this new moment in our human history. Yep. Thank you so much, sir. This has been awesome. So, Ellen, I was very well. I was interested in re like reloading an episode of Pastor with No Answers because I thought that the time that you had with Chip about the Billy Graham rule was such an interesting mm-hmm. conversation. Went back, wasn't worth reloading, and it wasn't your fault. It was my fault. I just don't. I was just like, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of a bad po- podcaster. I don't want to reload an old episode like that, but it made me think of something and it and so I think the reason why a lot of people like me as a podcaster is because I do this. I'm going to tell a very 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 embarrassing story that makes me cringe. I was so this Billy Graham rule makes me think of it. I was at CVS and there is a homeless woman who kind of hangs around that area. She's there a lot. And she actually came up to me and said, can I have a ride to such and such? And I don't read, I don't remember why I couldn't do that. Or if I just thought to myself, it's not safe. But as the words were coming out of my mouth, I was like, please come back. But I couldn't stop. I actually told her that I am a pastor. And I am not allowed to ride with the woman in the car. She looked at me and she actually got somebody else in the parking lot. She was so blown away. She said, you got to come here and listen to what this boy just said. He Good said he her. is a pastor and he can't ride. Oh, Joey. Oh, and I couldn't take you it You could back. have said literally anything, anything. else. 